Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations of graphic violence and pregnant women in peril. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Technically, the Oceanborn Mary House was private property, but Cameron refused to believe that someone purchased a place called the Oceanborn Mary House and actually expected to be left alone. If a house had a name in addition to an address, it had to be haunted, plain and simple. So he decided to load up his ghost hunting gear and explore the yard that night. Yards were practically public property, he figured. He sat by, or practically in, a hydrangea bush. Heat-sensitive camera pointed toward the majestic 18th century mansion. He sat and waited, but nothing appeared. The house was still. Cameron slowly realized that the wind had ceased to blow. He was sitting in a strange sort of vacuum of frozen silence. Only the empty darkness remained. Then, slowly a figure began to appear. A woman. Her white dress was anchored by the whitest hoop skirt he'd ever seen, but it still rippled slightly in a wind that Cameron could not feel. Her skin was pale, and her eyes were an icy white. Cameron wondered if all ghosts were simply in grayscale, but then he saw the hair. Fire engine red, almost burning on the top of her shock-white head, it, too, seemed to feel a breeze that was no longer there. She looked at him, so beautiful and kind, the picture of maternal love. Then, her eyes glowed red. She shot toward him, striking him, passing through his body like a freezing wind. He felt a prick of cold pain. A moment later, he began to shiver and shake blood flowing from a wound that shouldn't have been there. His legs gave out. He attempted to support himself by clutching the hydrangeas, but they only ripped out as he continued to fall. He collapsed face first onto the grass as the pale petals surrounded him like snow. His eyes closed and didn't open again. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to New Hampshire's Oceanborn Mary House, an 18th century home filled with legends of high seas adventure and pirate gold. And discover why, to this day, it's haunted. Coming up, we'll begin our voyage to the Oceanborn Mary House. Built between 1784 and 1786, the Oceanborn Mary House is an 18th century mansion in the hilly outskirts of Henniker, New Hampshire. It contains four large rooms on the first floor and six on the second floor, four bedrooms and two anterooms. 
Its kitchen holds one of the largest domestic fireplaces in New Hampshire, with an 8-foot, 6-inch opening and enough room to cook 12 pies at once. There are four entrances secured with the New England-style double-cross witch doors. As the name implies, these doors were intended to evoke the Christian cross in order to ward off evil. It was a necessary precaution. Witnesses have said that the Henniker Mansion holds numerous spirits, from malevolent voices to phantom carriages. But the home's most famous ghost is what gives it its name, Mary Wilson Wallace. One of Henniker's most beloved residents, it's said she appears in a white dress with blazing red hair and ominous glowing eyes. Mary and her descendants would be prominent in New Hampshire society for centuries to come. But the true source of her celebrity is the circumstances of her birth. Those same circumstances would ensure that the house that bears her name remained an object of interest long after her death. Elizabeth knew pregnancy would be difficult, and she knew it would be worse on a ship, even with her husband beside her. She had asked every woman she knew for advice before she'd left the shore of Ireland behind for the Americas, but no amount of talk had prepared her for the reality. Her morning sickness never went away, nor did her swelling. Pregnancy had already destroyed her sense of balance, and the rolling of the ship made it nearly impossible to walk. She was largely confined below decks, where she stared at the same shifting planks of wood day after day. Embroidery occasionally distracted her from the pain, but there was nothing to stop her boredom. Her idle mind spun horror after horror before her tired eyes. Every wave or patch of troubled waters seemed like the end for them all. Her belly might help her float if the ship were capsized, but it was more likely that she would be trapped in the cabin with the furniture. The nightmares were the worst. She dreamed that she was stranded in an unending ocean as her baby tried to force its way out. The child would scratch at her insides while the current pulled her under. Neither of them could find a way to safety. She would wake up covered in sweat and gasping for air. The baby would kick against the walls of her stomach as if they'd seen the dream as well. The crew told her that they were lucky the winds were so strong this time of year. To lose the wind was almost certainly a death sentence. Even the most hardened sailors went mad in stagnant seas. Elizabeth had never considered the notion that the wind could just leave, that they would be stuck, floating aimlessly. Time stopped, except for her advancing pregnancy, a ticking clock that became more dangerous with each day at sea. Elizabeth lay in her bed, trying to summon the will to rise. She had awakened from her nap like she always did, queasy and uncomfortable. She wanted her husband James' comforting presence with her, but he snuck up to the deck any chance he could. Feet pounded down the stairs. Elizabeth grit her teeth and pulled herself up and off the cot. She braced her arms against the wall, waiting for the nausea to die down. She could hear the sound of doors opening throughout the hall, followed closely by the excited sounds of conversation. She realized that the ship wasn't creaking with the usual steady motion. Had they reached land? 
Elizabeth made careful step after careful step to the door. It creaked loudly as she pushed it open. Salt air hit her immediately, even though she was still below deck. Another wave of nausea rolled through her. She rubbed her stomach softly and told the baby that they would get through this. The ship outside of her cabin was chaos. Sailors and passengers ran every which way. Panic shouts echoed off the bulkheads. Footsteps slammed against the boards. Elizabeth grabbed a young crewman's arm and asked if they were close to shore. His face lost color. She could tell that he'd been sweating, but she could also see separate trails of moisture down his face. Had he been crying? His hands shook as he pulled his arm free and stammered out one word. Pirates. The color drained from Elizabeth's face. Pirates meant death. She had little to offer anyone who boarded their ship. If they found her, they'd think nothing of running her through. As if prompted by the thought, she felt the sharp pain of a blade slice through her abdomen. When she looked down, however, there was no wound on her body. She slid down the wall. The pain plunged into her again. She patted at her stomach, trying to calm the child. Now wasn't the best time to come out. They could do this later, if they survived. Crawling on her hands and knees, she made her way back to her bunk. If she was quiet enough, they might not find her. The rest of the ship was already on decks to surrender. Perhaps they'd have mercy and not give her away. Liquid spilled out of her body. There was no more denying it. This baby was going to come whether she wanted it to or not. Another wave of pain passed through her. She grabbed a pillow and screamed into it, hoping the cloth would be enough to muffle the sound. She lay back on the bed and screwed her eyes shut. She wished that James was by her side. At least then, they would die together. Another sharp stab of pain. The pillow wasn't thick enough to drown it all out. She heard the boots on the floor outside the room. Elizabeth bit down on her lips so hard that she drew blood. She prayed for the child to stay quiet. But babies are terrible listeners. She pushed, trying to keep her screams contained. Another wave crashed through her. They were growing closer together now. The footsteps were receding. Elizabeth dropped the pillow for one moment of relaxation. The next wave didn't give her a chance to raise the pillow. She screamed, too loud to be ignored. There was nowhere for her to hide in the small room. Even if there was, movement was out of the question in her current state. The footsteps came closer. Elizabeth pulled the pillow to her mouth again. Another scream burst forth from her body. The sound was muffled, but audible. The door creaked open. Elizabeth opened her eyes. She would not be afraid. If she and her child could not make it in this life, they would find peace in the next. A curved blade came through the doorway first. Small rivulets of blood ran along the shining metal. Her eyes followed the blade as it moved toward her. The features of the man were blurred, but the sword was clear as day. She screamed again, the child forcing sound out of her. 
This time, she did look at the man. He smiled at her, sword still raised. She glared back as best she could. The man told her his captain would want to see her. Elizabeth had nowhere to go. Mary Wilson was born on a ship in the summer of 1720 as her Ulster Scott parents, James and Elizabeth Wilson, crossed the Atlantic to New England. This is a provable historical fact. The legend goes that a notorious pirate captured the ship just off the American coast. He discovered Elizabeth Wilson clutching her infant to her chest, still flushed with the pain of labor. It is said that the pirate was so moved by her vulnerability and so awed by the baby's innocence that he promised to let the ship go free. His only condition was for the Wilsons to name their daughter Mary, after his mother or wife, depending on the telling. The couple agreed, and the pirate gifted them a bolt of green Chinese silk, which Mary would later wear on her wedding day. There's no way to confirm the name of the benevolent swashbuckler, but reports of pirate activity around Boston at the time frequently mentioned the name of Captain Thomas Roberts. This was a known alias of Bartholomew Roberts, a Welsh pirate who hunted around Newfoundland and New England in the 1720s. While the legends surrounding Mary's benefactor sometimes claim that he was a father himself and softened as a result, Roberts had no wife or children, according to historical records. Some biographers even suggested that he was queer. What does match Mary's legend is the reports that Roberts frequently offered gifts to cooperative crews of captured ships, so it would have been in character to part with a bolt of silk as a gesture of goodwill. Mary did wed her husband in that silk dress, and she lived a relatively charmed life, despite the rigors of colonial homesteading. But then, her whole world changed, and death came to call. Up next, the captain's past catches up with Mary. Hi, it's Greg. Parcast has a brand new series sure to become your next podcast obsession. It's called Medical Murders, and it exposes a dark and disturbing diagnosis that not every doctor wants to extend your life. Every Wednesday, Medical Murders introduces you to the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join host Alastair Burton as he examines the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers, dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD, Dr. David Kipper. You'll investigate a wide range of heinous healthcare workers, like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history, or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman, or even the doctor and gang member who mixed deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. Ocean-born Mary House in Henniker, New Hampshire is said to be the final home of Mary Wilson Wallace, 
an Ulster Scott woman who was born while her parents were crossing the Atlantic to settle in the New World. Mary grew to become a tall, blue-eyed, red-haired beauty and married James Wallace in Londonderry, New Hampshire on December 18, 1742. At her wedding, she wore a Chinese silk gown, rumored to have been fashioned from a cloth a pirate captain had given her as a child. Mary and James would have five surviving children, four sons and a daughter. The ocean-born Mary house would be owned by Mary's second son, Robert Wallace. Legend says that this idyllic fortune didn't stick, that Mary was widowed early, forced to support her five children on her own. It was then that a familiar face stepped back into her life, one Bartholomew Roberts, now retired, but a pirate forever and always. Though Mary had often dreamed of marriage, widowhood was never something she'd contemplated as a child. When she agreed to marry Jay, she'd seen forever ahead of her, an unending sea of love. Arriving at the other shore without him was a bit of a shock. Now that he'd passed, Mary struggled to find ways to carry on without him. It was easier to talk to the air as if he was still there. She knew he wasn't, but there was comfort in the gesture. It was muscle memory. Her body knew to love him and keep him with her always, so she supplied the conversation. She imagined the wrinkles around his eyes and his thin-lipped smile, picturing him alongside her because that was more bearable than the pain of an empty bed. Her new position as a housekeeper gave her something to focus on outside of her grief. She walked unfamiliar halls with the comfort of her love beside her, Jay was her constant companion as she did her chores in the large Henniker mansion. Her new employer, Captain Roberts, didn't mind. He was a pirate after all, and all sailors were superstitious. He knew the pain of losing a loved one and was fine with her quirks, as long as she got her work done. He was dark-skinned and handsome, skin weathered by sun and sea. He spent nearly all his time reading in his bedroom, but his company was entrancing when he did emerge. He would tell her about all sorts of things she could never imagine. Tropical islands, buried treasure, thrilling sword fights with privateers. She would carry the stories home to her children, and they were thrilled when Uncle Bart came to visit. She liked him. It was strange to think that he'd once boarded the ship her parents were on with the hope of plundering everything of value. He'd shown them mercy instead, and was doing so again now. She hadn't expected him to show up at her door shortly after the death of her husband, and she certainly hadn't expected him to remember her. But he did. She'd burst into tears when he asked her if fate had treated her well. He told her he understood. He was a widower too, in a way. From this shared confession on, they were the closest of chaste companions. Mary was in the kitchen preparing the captain's afternoon tea. Civilian life had given him a fondness for routines, which Mary shared. They made the time pass faster, especially now that her children were in school. She heard footsteps behind her and smiled. She reminded the former captain that he'd promised to be patient, even when she was making his favorite, mince pie. The footsteps retreated. Mary told Jay that Roberts was a funny man, but a kind one. The pirate's voice carried from his bedroom, muffled but uncharacteristically tight and terse. Mary paused, 
he couldn't have reached the bedroom that quickly. She lifted her butter-covered hands from the dough and asked if everything was all right. There was no answer. If Jay were here, he'd tell her that she was being carried away by superstition. The ghosts that lived in her mind always stayed there. All was well. Mary took comfort in her deceased husband's words. She placed the pies in the fireplace to cook and went back to the kettle. Her mind started to wander as she went through her daily rituals. It had been silly of her to think that anything bad could happen here. A scream echoed off the walls. Mary looked to the stove, but the water wasn't ready yet. If the noise hadn't come from there, where had it come from? Mary called out to Roberts. He still refused to answer her. What if someone had crept by her? No, she would have heard them. She supposed it wouldn't hurt to check. She walked down the hallway, feeling Jay at her side. It was rare for her to be this sure of his presence. He certainly didn't follow her around. She knew that most of the time she was just talking to herself. Why did he feel the need to visit now? She felt goosebumps rise on her skin. A chill crept into the air. Mary took a deep breath to steady herself. All was well. There was no reason to think otherwise. Her body didn't listen to her. Her legs were beginning to shake. She felt Jay's hand on her shoulder. It would be all right. She was just getting carried away. She took another step and froze. She could hear it now. The slash of metal against something. Mary lifted her skirts and broke into a run. She mounted the stairs, calling the captain's name repeatedly. He was a skilled swordsman, but it had been years since he needed to pick up a blade. She didn't have a single tool that could help him, but she didn't want to lose another companion so soon after Jay. She scrambled to the top of the landing, but a blur of dark fabric rushed toward her, nearly knocking her over. She barely managed to dive forward and away from the perilous steps. She hit the floorboards with a loud thump. Dazed, her eyes followed a small trail of blood across the hallway. The person, for she could see clearly now that it was not a hulking mass of cloth, had covered themselves from head to toe in dark colors. The crashing footsteps and slamming doors confirmed her fears. He was fleeing. Something had gone horribly wrong. She climbed to her feet, but she didn't know what to do next. The mysterious houseguest was getting away, but Robert's silence scared her. As if in answer, she heard the crack of a whip and the whinny of a horse as a carriage thundered away from the house. She ran for the bedroom. The air inside the room tasted of blood. Everywhere she looked, she saw spots of dark red. This was not an attack, so much as a hurricane that shredded its victim and moved on. Mary felt herself start to sway. A sure hand took hold of her. She could not see it, but she could feel the pressure as it guided her to a chair in the room. Jay was still taking care of her. When she could bring herself to look, she found herself staring at the motionless body of Captain Roberts, sprawled across the bed. Even dead, he had a beauty and dignity that no one else could manage. He was still the dashing figure her mother had told her about. 
His torso had been cut through, as though he were a block of cheese. All of his beautiful sheets were stained with blood. In her shock, Mary's first thought was that washing the linens would take her days. She heard a wry chuckle beside her. Not the higher-pitched tones of her husband, but something deeper. The sound was instantly familiar. It had been her companion for the last few months. Her beloved employer, Captain Roberts. She turned toward the noise, but he wasn't there. Of course not. He was on the bed. That same pressure came to her shoulder again. Realization came with it. It wasn't Jay that walked the halls with her minutes before. It was Captain Roberts. He'd already died, and yet he'd lingered, all too aware of Mary's issues with grief. She placed her hand over his. She felt the fingers start to fade. She resisted. No, he needed to stay with her. She didn't want to be alone. She wasn't ready. She heard a small voice in her ear telling her he would provide for her, that she would always have a home here. The hand vanished. She was alone again. Legend has it that after the death of Mary's husband, the pirate who had named her those many years ago returned to help her, either marrying her or setting her up in his home as a housekeeper. Not too long after, Poor Mary was shocked one day to discover her benefactor dead, his violent past finally claiming his life. The most likely candidate for this legendary figure is perhaps one of the most storied pirates of all, Bartholomew Black Bart Roberts. Captain Bartholomew Roberts was one of the most successful figures in the golden age of piracy. He hunted all around the Atlantic, commanding over 500 men. His fleet dominated the North Atlantic in the early 1720s, so even if Elizabeth Wilson hadn't met Roberts himself, it's very likely it would have been one of his captains that took mercy on her ship. Compelling as the tale of the pirate's return was, local historians have struggled to find evidence to substantiate this part of Mary's legend. Roberts himself died in battle off the coast of West Africa on February 10, 1722, when Mary would have been only two years old. His demise is often considered to be the end of the golden age of piracy. The historical records say that Mary lost her husband James on October 30, 1791, only one year shy of their 50th wedding anniversary. Mary would have needed no assistance from a pirate captain to provide for herself or her successful adult children. James Wallace left her the whole of their estate. Mary would move in with her son William in her later years and died on February 13, 1814, at the age of 94. In theory, this would be where Ocean-born Mary House gets its famous red-haired ghost. The trouble is, the Ocean-born Mary House belonged to her son Robert, not her son William. Mary Wallace never lived in it, though she may have visited frequently. She was close with Robert, and her most famous son would die less than a year after his mother's death on January 30, 1815. The circumstances of Robert's death provide the first evidence of his home potentially being haunted. Robert Wallace died after a fall from his horse. Some say that the animal was spooked by the ghostly apparition of his late mother in the yard at the front of the house.
Coming up, we'll see that ocean-born Mary isn't the only unearthly presence at the Henniker house. Now back to the story. Ocean-born Mary House is steeped in legend, from the fairy tale-like story of Mary's birth at sea to the return of her pirate savior. However, most of the events themselves didn't actually occur on the grounds of the home. That didn't stop New Englanders from conflating Robert Wallace's stately manor with his famous mother's legend. The historical facts of the house may lack the swashbuckling appeal of the legends, but they still provide plenty of supernatural drama of their own. This drama would only grow when a photographer named Gussie Roy purchased the house in 1916. Oceanborn Mary had never lived at Oceanborn Mary House, but that didn't bother Gussie in the least. He loved a good story, and he believed that objects told them just as well as people, if not better. He'd been relatively successful photographing antiques of New England for a time, but now he was looking to settle down. A historical house with a storied past seemed like the perfect fit. He called around to various counties in New England in search of the perfect place, and fate was kind. The 18th century ocean-born Mary house was dark, imposing, and cheap. Perfect for a restoration and a ghost story. He spent almost 10 years quietly fixing up the place, and by 1925, he'd gotten the newspapers on his side as well. He told the Boston Post about a ghostly stagecoach that would appear in the house's yard, which would let Ocean Mary herself out near the door before disappearing. Soon, the Associated Press came calling, and then came the tourists. Gussie and his mother, Flora, loved to share the history of the house with the people who came by, for a small price, of course. In 1930, he had his most brilliant idea yet, a treasure hunt. The public ate it up. Sure, the yard was full of holes, but they paid to rent shovels all the same. It was a nice job, telling stories. Excellent work if you could make it up. The years wore on. The spiritualists and mediums came and went. Gussie was nearing his 50s now. He looked good for his age rested. There were fewer tourists in December. New Hampshire winters were cold and dark. Gussie would argue they were spooky, but everyone seemed to lose interest in spirits from November 1st to the spring thaw. Still, Gussie got out every morning before the sun rose to shovel the walk to the house. It was hard work, but satisfying, and he was more than halfway done when he first heard it. The beat of hooves. He dismissed it as some tourist taking advantage of a good old New England sleigh ride. But the carriage was getting closer. Finally, it came into view. A pale white coach with pale white horses thundering down the drive. Gussie couldn't believe his eyes. They were practically translucent and glowed in the moonlight as it glinted off the snow. The coach rolled to a stop. The horses whinnied and fussed, their nostrils leaving small trails in the air. There was no driver. Gussie was a businessman, not a believer, but that didn't stop him from dropping the shovel softly and reaching into his pocket for his Ensign E-20 camera. 
It was a marvelous little invention, the ensign, portable and always ready for a quick shot. He brought the viewfinder to his eye, reminding himself that if this was a hallucination, he would capture nothing and no one would ever know. But if it was real, why Gussie was about to be as rich as P.T. Barnum. He pressed down on the shutter and heard the comforting click. Still, the horses didn't move. He lined up another shot. He stepped closer, getting a better angle on the horses. Their flanks were thick with sweat, but he could see the snowdrifts through their skin. He hit the shutter again. Then he turned to the carriage itself. He steeled himself and reached forward to open the carriage door. Ever so slowly, he pulled it open, studying the inky darkness inside. It seemed abnormally deep, ready to swallow him up. But just as he'd gotten the nerve to inch closer, the door snapped shut, nearly taking his nose with it. Gussie stumbled backwards, dropping the camera as the carriage lurched forward before disappearing into thin air. Gussie peered through the clear winter morning. There was no sign of a coach thundering away down the lane. It was as if it had never been there at all. He looked down to see his broken camera, film exposed to the moonlight. Beside it were carriage tracks in the snow. Gussie Roy's family had been rich once, but some unfortunate investments had left them low on funds. In 1916, Roy reached out to the Henniker, New Hampshire postmaster to inquire if there were any old houses in the area he could buy. A woman working at the post office told him about Robert Wallace's home, which had been built in the 1780s. Roy promptly acquired it and would later claim that the spirit of Oceanboard Mary had called him to restore her home. It is important to note that the idea that Mary lived in her son's house dates back to the 1890s, but it was Roy who ran with it, saying that the mansion was built by the pirate captain who spared Mary's parents and then returned later in her life. He then added a particularly intriguing and potentially lucrative button to the legend. Roy claimed that the mysterious pirate had hidden gold on the property as a measure to care for Mary. But conveniently, the gold was never found. By the 1930s, Gussie Roy's stories had fully taken hold. The local historical society reported numerous anecdotes of objects moving on their own. A ghostly red-haired woman with glowing eyes, and even a full phantom stagecoach had left hoofprints in the snow. Roy gave tours of the house and sold shovels to tourists who hoped to hunt for pirate gold buried somewhere on the grounds. The house was covered by numerous newspapers up through the 1960s and was investigated by several spiritualists and mediums. Lorraine Warren, the controversial paranormal investigator whose cases were dramatized in The Conjuring Films, says that the ocean-born Mary House was a site where she experienced a distinct astral projection, but not everyone got the results they sought. Gussie Roy sold the house to a couple, Corinne and David Russell, in 1962, but continued to live as a lodger in the building. Roy and the Russells invited noted paranormal researcher Hans Holzer and famous occultist Sybil Leake to explore the property. 
they recorded severely contradictory phenomena and information. It's unclear if this was what dissuaded the Russells from continuing to support Roy's allegations. But by 1967, the couple had begun to officially deny the house's haunted status. They hung a sign in the front hall about ghosts, apparitions, poltergeists, and other assorted such nonsense. We have none. They sold the house in 1972, and all owners since have asked to be left alone, concurring with the Russell's assessment. If you ask them, the hauntings at Oceanborn Mary House are either done or never occurred at all. And yet we must remember the only recorded words we have from Mary Wallace herself. Indeed, I was born neither on this side or that side of the water, nor anywhere else on God's green earth. Mary Wallace was always a liminal figure, defined by her status as ocean-born. It's not surprising that her legacy slides from location to location, story to story. You could argue that the numerous sightings and experiences of witnesses are a case of group suggestion or a flat-out hoax. But when you gaze up at the dark mansion, it's difficult to think that there isn't any haunted history there. It's almost 250 years old now. The Wallaces were a tight family. The ocean-born Mary House has especially tall ceilings because William Wallace was six foot four inches tall. When asked about the abnormal heights of the rooms in his home, Robert Wallace explained to an acquaintance that his brother William is very tall, and as I want him to visit me, I have rooms made high. Perhaps it was this affection and interest in family that leads Mary to visit her son's home, even though she's lived in another residence. If you meet her on a cold New Hampshire night, eyes glowing, red hair blazing, you'll certainly hope she's only there for a visit. Thanks for tuning in to Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Rache, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson. Hi, listeners. Remember to check out the new ParCast original series, Medical Murders. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>